Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So you guys, this is our 100th episode. Woohoo! I feel so old. But there's no time to celebrate. No, there is not. We know celebrating. Make rational security great again. <laughs> Nose to the grindstone time. It makes you feel old. We've been 100 episodes. Yeah, I feel like we've been doing this forever. Is and that it's... two years? It is. Jesus. Oh, my God. Wow. So let me, we... ta- let me take this opportunity to say that if you are a listener who has not yet rated rational security. <laughs> Give us 100 stars. <laughs> our 100th episode is an opportunity for you to rectify that problem. And if you are audible, Casper mattresses or uh, stamps.com, stamps.com, Blue or Apron, Blue Apron, Seat Geek. If you are yeah. anybody Movement who's watches. interested in giving us money for uh, saying things, right? If we you are one it. of those entities that has not yet sponsored Rational Security, get off your goddamn asses and pick up the phone. You can That'll see that event. we have a lot of things to say. We have a hundred episodes worth of things yeah. to say, <laughs> and you don't and, have to retroactively sponsor them, either. right? You get those first hundred episodes for free. <laughs> Sponsor today. Sign up today. Get a hundred free episodes. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Centennial Edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal. Happy hundredth birthday, guys! Hey, happy hundredth birthday! Happy birthday to us. to us! We're excited. Speaking yeah. of which, we didn't break out the scotch on our hundredth birthday. I think we need some. I was depending on you. To All right, I will. I will get it out as this. you do the as you do the intro. Well, I do the intro. That's a, you know Ben Wittes, <laughs> resident bartender and mixologist. Uh, also here with uh, Tamara Kaufman Wittes and Susan Hennessy. Hi guys. Hi hey, Shane. You're in the jungle studio. It's actually an unseasonably warm day today in Washington. The sun is out. Not that I'm complaining. A little positive. No, are, no, are no I'm not. No. I think that there's just a, a gulf, a contrast between the weather and our hearts. Yeah. Well, we're gonna have a lot to talk about this week, so we better get right to it. Uh, this week on the podcast, President Trump has announced executive orders on border security, immigration policy, maybe interrogation. We're not so sure. Uh, ex-military officers are taking up senior posts on the National Security Council. And U.S. investigators have scrutinized National Security Advisor Mike Flynn's communications with Russian officials plus object lessons. Um, let's start with the the announcement of executive orders, they're not quite signed, but there's obviously some really big ones dealing with key campaign issues that Trump talked about, including the wall with Mexico. Uh, ben, why don't you kind of give us the rundown on what we know about what he's planning to sign and what they say? All right. Well, so the short answer, Shane, is we don't really know. Trump, as we speak, is announcing uh, some executive orders on immigration, one uh, that will begin the process of building the wall and another that will curtail uh, both immigrant and non-immigrant visas from certain Muslim-majority countries and that will end uh, temporarily for 120 days, we think, the uh, – uh, U.S. refugee program, uh, which is clearly directed at stopping Syrian refugees. Um, in addition, uh, there is a draft um, 
executive order circulating on Guantanamo military commissions and CIA interrogations and detentions. Although as of uh, shortly before we uh, started recording, uh, White House spokesman Sean Spicer uh, has disavowed this draft as not uh, a White House document. Uh, so we don't. Did he say not a White House document or not a White House document yet? <laughs> well, he, he, it's totally unclear whether that means it's earlier in the process or that means it's, uh, you know, I, I assume they're going to do something in that department. Um, but it's, I don't really purport to know how close that document is to prime time. And then the New York Times also reported yesterday, as have other, or this morning, as have other um, uh, news organizations, that the president is planning to issue an executive order directing uh, a review of whether the Muslim Brotherhood should be designated as a, uh, a foreign terrorist organization under the material support statute, which uh, um, uh, listeners will remember as a subject that Tamara has discussed in the past on the show. Uh, so right now, we don't have final text of any of these executive orders, although it might be available since we've been talking, uh, but they've been relatively, uh, they've been sketched out uh, in both uh, extant drafts and news stories with relative detail. So I, I think there are a few things that I'm finding really interesting about this process. We're still in just the first few days of a new administration, and it's natural that a new administration would want to demonstrate that they are implementing the promises they made to the American people in the campaign, the wall was was such a, a promise. Um, stopping refugees from and Muslims from coming into the country was one such horrific promise. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, you can kind of understand the rush to do this. On the other hand, um, it's it's so rushed that it's a very chaotic process, and um, not just leaks, but things that are that are put out by the administration to kind of prepare the ground. Um, the president's visit to the Homeland Security Department, you know, it's all put together in a big rush. And the content that emerges is not always the content that was signaled. Um, and it, and there's a lot of leaking of draft documents, you know, going up online or getting leaked to reporters. And it strikes me that there's a process point here for a new administration, um, which is that executive orders, you know, typically uh, come after a process of interagency discussion, of legal review to ensure that they will actually do what the president wants and that there is, in fact, a way that's spelled out in the document to get done what the president wants to get done. And these are being rushed to such an extent that they're probably going to have to be revised or amended or overridden, or they simply won't have much impact. Um, and the ones that we've seen so far, either in draft or in actuality, are basically just directing agencies to review things or to study things or to sort of hold off on things while they do a review. And therefore, the practical impact is is pretty limited. Um, they are so they they sort of I suppose they have a signaling function politically, but they might not have that much practical effect 
um, at, at least in the long term. Yeah, so I agree. I mean, I think it is all sort of signal, right, that he's going to he's going to fulfill all of his promises. Um, I, I think it's even it's it's not just rushed in the sense that this is coming out, you know, five days into the administration, six days into the administration. It's also rushed in the sense that it doesn't appear that there was any planning during the transition period, right? So ordinarily, but on the first day that a president assumes office, there is some plan about priorities, how they're going to go about achieving this. Um, so I, I think it's hard to view what is going on with anything other than uh, concluding that it's total chaos and pandemonium. Um, the leaks certainly add to that uh, uh, sense. Um, the other thing that's sort of you know, interesting is that he's not, um, you know, Trump is is really doubling down on some of his most um, obstinate promises. Um, uh, and, you know, anybody who was uh, harboring the delusion that he was going to moderate or or start engaging with facts or, or prioritizing, uh, you know, particular issues, I, I think has essentially been disproven, not even a week in. Um uh, you know, so so to the extent that these executive orders end up doing nothing, um, sure, I, I agree that that's a possibility. Um, there's also a possibility they could end up having really, really serious unintended consequences, um, and I th- we've seen that over and over again, even in just a few days, right? So, um, uh, whoever ordered the National Park Service to stop uh, stop tweeting because somebody had retweeted something offensive or you know, the or retweeted comparison. something about crowd size, exactly, not yeah. even offensive, right? I'm already adopting their sort of their their contract, but you know had retweeted this this picture of the two crowd sizes um, showing Trump with a smaller inaugural crowd um, and and somebody uh, uh, from the White House uh, from the uh, Washington support office uh, unclear what direction uh, came from the administration itself said fine you National Park Service can no longer tweet well that might seem like a silly thing or, or inconsequential actually Twitter is a part of their crisis communications plans when there is a fire or a flood or, or an emergency ongoing um, different agencies use multiple multiple methods to communicate with the public. Um, so, you know, we saw that the National Park Service had to had to write a letter and say, anybody who uses Twitter as part of your crisis comms plans, you need to come up with an alternative solution. These are the kinds of things where just thoughtlessly sort of, you know, throwing things out there. It, it now has really serious consequences because the executive branch listens to the executive. So, I, go ahead, Ben. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I just, I just, and the question of whether it's sort of thoughtless or chaotic, it's it's so interesting because... On the one hand, like just as a reporter covering this week of the administration getting off the ground, there are aspects of it that are very chaotic. I mean, you you're talking about different power centers in the White House that clearly aren't talking to each other, stories that aren't getting straight, documents that are flying around and getting leaked that the White House has to then disavow, but then the president says, well, maybe not. Um, but this also seeks, seems to me that if if we're to be believed that you know Trump's strategy has generally been get lots of things going, make people compete with one another. That's kind of the narrative that we've always been told, at least about how he ran things in his businesses or maybe on The Apprentice. This seems to be his element, right? And 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 he does want to clearly signal that he's getting tough in some of these executive orders, but they're not necessarily hollow. I mean, if he suspends refugee uh, flows for four months, that has a real world impact on people. If he if he starts to do more vetting and visa suspension from certain areas, that's that's going to have a real practical impact. I know talking to people in the administration who are not happy with a lot of these policy changes, I mean, they see this as the beginning of exactly what he promised to do. As chaotic and unscripted as it seems, yeah, I, it's yeah, going I, according so to plan. I see, I see no reason not to take it reasonably seriously as the uh, as 
the beginning of that part of which that he promised to do that's conceivably doable. So let's let's take it in order. Uh, he promised to build a wall. It, one of the executive orders starts the process of building a wall. Now, I happen to think that a wall is a dumb but basically harmless idea. So that one does not particularly trouble me. It's a waste of money and and other uh, resources, and it sends some bad signals, but I don't care very much. I care very much about refugee and uh, visa uh, from from countries where we should um, – and he promised to stop the Syrian refugee program and cut off uh, immigration and, um, and uh, entry from Muslim countries. Uh, and within a few days of taking office, he's issued an order to do that. The only thing you can say in defense of the idea that this is reflects some moderation is that it is temporary. Um, but then again, he did from the beginning say until we figure out what's going on, right? And so that is a, uh, you know, apparently he means to figure out what's going on over the course of 30 days in the case of immigration and visas and 120 days in the case of refugees. And then finally, on the other thing, um, where I do think, you know, the draft EO on, on, uh, detention uh, and interrogation is uh, potentially a lot of smoke and mirrors and not a lot of policy change. I do think the optics of that matter. And, you know, if you're uh, a foreign intelligence service that has obligations to uh, certain uh, treaty organizations not to cooperate with uh, torture, and the United States has suddenly a new policy of engaging in activities that your, for example, the European Court of Human Rights might regard as torture, you're going to have to revisit certain intelligence cooperation with the United States. And so, you know, I, th I think he has allowed himself in, in the case of that EO a lot of room for it to amount to nothing. But that doesn't mean it's without consequence. I think that's a really important point. And I think on the immigration and refugee issues, too, even if the suspensions are temporary, there's a, a certain amount of damage that's done instantly that isn't undone when the suspension is over. And that's the sort of reputational damage. But I would say more than that, the soft power damage that's done to the United States in the Middle East, where it then becomes, you know, seen as uh, callously um, refusing uh, to engage with these countries, uh, with people from these countries, the the people who were probably planning to come here on vacation or uh, as business people or on exchange programs sponsored by the State Department who are now not going to be able to enter the United States. And then, of course, refugees fleeing horrific violence, fleeing threats from ISIS, among others, that the United States uh, callously closes its doors to. And doing this on the, on the criteria that these are countries that 
are suffering from terrorism or countries that are Muslim countries that are suffering from terrorism, since one notes that France and Belgium are not on the list, um, it, it contributes to this sort of clash of civilizations narrative, which is ISIS's narrative. It actually plays into the hands of our adversaries. And that damage is instant and, uh, and won't be undone. Okay, so along those lines, let's talk about some of the people who are coming in to enact these policies. And undoubtedly, well, they all agree shaping. with ISIS that you know <laughs> the problem is a clash between Islam and the West. So. Many of many of them do. In fact, um, we're seeing reports and hearing uh, through our own sources too about uh, a number of former military officers, special operations types folks. Uh, including those who know Mike Flynn taking post in the National Security Council. Um, already there have been some people who've been associated more with that clash of civilizations view who've been advising on the transition. I'm thinking of um, Sebastian Gorka and his wife, Katie Gorka, among some others. Um, I will note Sebastian Gorka, who comes from a family of refugees. Good point. Noted. Um, Tamara, what do you make of these, you know, it's been, obviously there are people with of an ideological bent. Maybe that's not totally surprising given this administration. I think it surprises a lot of conservatives that some people of this particular bent are now getting these senior posts. But what are we to make of the people that we see filling in these uh, you know, deputy and assistant level positions that really are the ones who run the, you know, the uh, the machinery of state. Yeah. So I think what's interesting that we've seen so far is um, the appointments in the White House, since a lot of the appointments in the State Department and Defense Department are still undetermined. Um, we have some rumors, but there there haven't been uh, any announcements there. But the names of people who are coming in to work on the National Security Council staff and to support the president and vice president on national security issues, it seems to me the main criterion for selection is, did you work for Mike Flynn at some point? <laughs> and uh, and if you did, then you have a pretty good chance of, of getting a job. It seems to be a staff of former military, former DIA. So uh, Derek Harvey, uh, another name that's been mentioned for a senior slot working Middle East issues on the national security staff, is a retired colonel, but then worked after his military retirement as a civilian for the Defense Intelligence Agency. Um, so what's clear is that Flynn is putting into the White House on national security people who are from the world he knows and uh, and therefore, you know, people that he's more likely to trust or who come to the issues with his perspective. And, you know, I think there are a couple challenges with that. One is that we know Mike Flynn believes that um, that the intelligence community was politicized and it wasn't telling the truth to President Obama about the resurgence of uh, of ISIS and Al Qaeda. In and they Iraq. don't speak enough Russian. Uh, right. <laughs> um <laughs> And uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about other concerns regarding Mike Flynn later in the podcast. But um, but we know that 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 view of the politicization of intelligence is a view that, you know, he wants to enforce. And so it wouldn't be surprising if he's looking for people who share that perspective. Uh, and that certainly will create some challenges in managing the interagency process. But the other problem that's likely to emerge from a heavily military, heavily DIA NSC is groupthink. 
These are people who all come from the same set of institutions. They've all been working the same set of problems. They all know each other. Where is the creative thinking going to come from? Where's the challenging perspective going to come from? Who's going to be willing to lay the stinker question on the table, which is a crucial part of interagency policy deliberation? And that's even in this administration potentially very a very acute problem since there appears to be no one who's willing to tell the president no. Right. Right. So, you know, that's if that if putting a stinker question on the table becomes a fireable offense, right. then groupthink is going to lead to a lot of bad policy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. There are there obviously are some concerns with um, with individuals, but it seems like the, the larger concern is less about any individual person on the NSC and more about sort of the overall composition and the balance. Um, I thought uh, Corey Chucky made a really interesting point, um, I think, in the Washington Post story um, about how uh, one criticism of Obama was that he um, uh, his composition was off in the other direction. It was too many policy wonks, too many strategy people. It wasn't enough people who had military experience and understood sort of the practical on the ground realities. Um, and so this is uh, sort of an inversion of that problem. Um, and then the importance here is really about getting, uh, you know, the appropriate balance. Um, look, obviously, uh, some of the concerns about Michael Flynn have been uh, his tendency to sort of build a, a cult of personality around him and, and this sense of personal loyalty instead of uh, who is the best person to do this job. Um, the other issue, and I, I mean, it almost feels uh, secondary or, or sort of silly to bring up because of course this is going to happen, um, is that you, ha if you have an organization that is staffed uh, exclusively or predominantly by military and, and military um, uh, pr in particular with combat experience, right? So Michael Flynn's talked about needing people who've, who've looked through the scope of a rifle. Um, you're not going to have any diversity. That group is going to be overwhelmingly male. It's going to be overwhelmingly white. It's right, sort of um, some of these soft features um, that contribute to that group think um, are, are going to be absent. And that's just, I think, going to exacerbate some of the worst tendencies uh, of this administration that they've, that they've shown just in the, in the short sort of half week they've been in power. So I actually think the other factor is that this group of people does seem to share a certain obsession with a kind of worldwide Islamist conspiracy. And that that actually bothers me a lot more than the lack of diversity or the uh, similarity of background. It's that there's a certain set of, uh, I don't know what to call them, obsessive sort of Daniel Pipesist. Um, no, I uh, would go a little further than that. I think that um, some of the individuals we're talking about are conspiracy theorists when it comes to the the insidious threat of Islam in America. Right. Not especially well regarded by the mainstream of the academic and the scholarly. Or even the mainstream of the conspiracy theories. I mean, there, there are sort of more respectable yeah. people who share some of those concerns. And, and I think some of these people would even consider themselves fringy. They might well, wear it as a badge of honor. Well, Look, like, yeah, I mean, Sebastian Gorka was the national security editor of Breitbart, right, which is very self-consciously not a mainstream publication, does not observe the standards of mainstream journalism. And, uh, and I think we should – understand his appointment uh, as some kind of very sort of Steve Bannon-like and, you know, move of that 
group of people into the corridors of power. And his particular obsession is the Muslim Brotherhood, which dovetails, I think, with the particular obsessions of Ted Cruz and, uh, you know, on the legislative side and certain other people. And this is, you know, a, a, a dangerous thing if you don't happen to believe that the Muslim Brotherhood is the biggest threat to U.S. national security interests in the world, particularly because whatever one might say about General Sisi, and I have, um, you know, my enthusiasm is well under control, he has done a rather good job of suppressing it. Yeah, I mean, what's what's interesting about Sebastian Gorka on this issue is that, you know, he he insists that the answer to the threat posed by uh, by Islam is secularization. Um, he cites Ataturk as a model, but he also claims that Sisi is a secularizer, which is just a, a complete misunderstanding of Sisi himself, who is a devout Muslim and very um, prominently observant and who who wields uh, the state's ability to shape religion and religious authority as a tool of power. He's, he's the opposite of a secularizer. So it betrays not just a, a, a weird fixation, but also a real misunderstanding of the facts. All right. Speaking of misunderstanding of facts, no, I don't know where I'm going with that. It just seems like things <laughs> you to say understand these days. all the facts. I don't know Shane. what are the facts. Alternate facts, alternative I, facts. Can I just say one more thing on on the Is it an combination fact? of NSA NSC enthusiasms and uh, and issuing sprees of executive orders right when you take office? Uh, you know, topics one and two merge, which is this doesn't end well. Um, when Bill Clinton took office, uh, they did this with uh, the gays in the military order. And that actually was a big problem. You know, it, it actually caused, I mean, it eventually caused the implementation of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which was a sort of disaster for a lot of LGBT people. Um, but it also caused the uh, first six months of the Clinton presidency to be consumed with a set of issues that they really didn't mean to be talking about. Uh, this didn't happen with the George W. Bush administration only because they didn't come into office wanting to think about national security issues. So that, you know, they, that didn't, they didn't try this until 9-11. But it really happened with Barack Obama, who came into office on day one and, uh, announces he's going to shut down Guantanamo. And this dogged him to the last day of his presidency. And, you know, if I have one piece of advice, not just for this administration, but for all administrations on major complicated national security questions in which there's not just two sides of the coin, there's a hundred sides of a multi-sided die, slow the heck down. I'm so glad to hear you say that because that was my my recommendation to the Trump administration in my inaugural post for shadow government on foreignpolicy.com was slow down. Well, let the record reflect we haven't consulted on this, but I really think it's it's a it's the wittest mind meld. It is the wittest. Group think it's group think. <laughs> you know, you don't need to do you've got 4 years, you don't need to do everything on your first day and you're going to screw up. I mean, if you do stuff, you know, the 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 draft executive order that the New York Times and the Washington Post printed on um 
on detention and interrogation is full of embarrassing typos. It gets the year of 9-11 wrong. It talks about the Army Phil-Ed manual, a misspelling field. I mean, it's it's really a, a, pardon me, a chicken shit piece of work product. And, you know, if you just, so this is my friendly advice to the Trump administration, folks, slow down, you spell, spell, spell things correctly, um, <laughs> and you might save yourself a lot of embarrassment and actually, let's be honest, a lot of litigation. Uh, you might even be able to have a conversation with John McCain before he issues an, an angry statement. There's just a lot to be said for doing things on day eight rather than on day three or day 28. Just slow down. Hashtag girl stop. <laughs> okay mike flynn national security advisor officially now mike flynn is getting scrutinized for some conversations that he had with the russian ambassador to the can United we States. have this entire <laughs> part of the conversation with russian accent and before no articles national security advisor i would i would like soon to before. warn you this conversation is being recorded mike merry christmas early <laughs> Um, so Russian Orthodox Christmas. <laughs> Quick backstory to all of this is that Mike Flynn had, I think we talked about this in the podcast in an earlier episode, had gotten in a bit of hot water for the question of wh- how many phone calls exactly did he have and when did he have them with the Russian ambassador and what were they talking about? Piat. Uh, what's that? Piat. <laughs> oh, that's five? Okay. <laughs> oh, we're actually speaking Russian. I thought we were just talking like Russian. Right. I do need to learn it because eventually, you know. All of it. We're all going to need to learn it. Um, <laughs> uh, now it has emerged uh, from some reporting we did in the Wall Street Journal this week uh, that counterintelligence investigators have scrutinized that conversation as well as others with Russian officials. We're still not entirely clear on who those officials may have been um, that Flynn apparently had throughout the transition. Um, the White House spokesperson, Sean Spicer, notably, I thought, in a press conference, um, A, did not refute our story, and B, said, I asked Mike Flynn. He told me he had two phone calls on four subjects. This is what I'm telling you, essentially. So I don't think I think this is something of a live issue. But um, Susan, I mean, you you have written about this this week uh, on Lawfare as well, and like what we know about contacts with Trump land and the Russians, and particularly Mike Flynn. Um, what are you finding? Well, so there's sort of mass confusion, right? Because there's there's the investigation into Trump ties, uh, into Trump associates ties with Russia in general. So Manafort and Carter Page Roger and Stone. Roger Stone, yeah. right? So there's sort of, there's one line of inquiry and then there's these questions about Flynn's contacts with the Russians. There's the DNC uh, hack investigations, right? There's, there's all this stuff going on and it's really hard to sort of find the thread. Um, I, I do think it's sort of important to understand the Michael Flynn stuff on its own. Um, so we still don't have have a clear answer these, what, two weeks later about how many phone calls he had um, and what the subject of those phone calls were. The White House itself has shifted its uh, uh, its story about that a number of times. Um, you know, but look, there's nothing uh, necessarily problematic, much less illegal about an incoming national security advisor having a conversation with the Russian ambassador or a foreign official uh, before uh, taking office. Um uh, that's why sort of I, I think the story had petered out a little bit, right? That, well, you know, he had these calls. There was no evidence, um, you know, for all of sort of the the anxiety about, you know, the Logan Act, the Logan Act, which, of course, is um, never actually uh, uh, used. 
uh, you know, the, the, it really became down to to a, a story about the White House being unable to get its story straight, uh, emerging against the sort of background of like Trump hearts Putin, uh, sort of generally. Um, then, uh, you know, chain story, um, which came out Sunday evening, uh, reported that they uh, they counterintelligence officials had investigated right. had uh, intercepts communications, of communications right? right so they had intercepts of communications that's not unusual right you can imagine why the russian ambassador would be a target of foreign intelligence collection um you know any official that has a conversation with him is liable to get picked up in that well what's notable is that uh not all of those conversations lead to counterintelligence investigations right for those communications to actually be examined for it to be part of an investigation um that means there's something um and so this is where i think um we're getting into uh, the chaos of the current white house uh paired with um uh some some lack of agreement among the press um so now uh shane obviously the wall street journal uh reported that uh that the investigation they had they had investigated uh, these calls but it wasn't clear whether or not this was an ongoing investigation or whether or not it produced anything um shortly thereafter cnn put up a story saying that there was an ongoing investigation so they said that no conclusions had been reached but uh investigators were still looking into this issue there was sufficient cause for concern um then after that uh, the washington post put up a story saying no 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 flynn's been cleared sort of indicating well he was never really part of an investigation this is just kind of regular you know people get picked up in communications all the time so really kind of uh, going to the other side then cbs comes in with their sourcing saying no our sources say that this is still an active investigation. So sort of uh, once again, or in yet another realm, just kind of general chaos. Or or a war of anonymous sources. You have White House sources talking to some people and FBI sources talking to other people and each one trying to get their narrative out. Right. I mean, it's just, I, I think it does uh, starkly illustrate the challenge of being a journalist. Uh, sorry, Shane. Oh, especially yeah. in the national security space over the next couple of years. Um, you know, I mean, I, usually we're used to be having to know that most people are full of shit, but not actively lying to you all right, the time. Exactly. Can, right. can, yeah, can, I, can I just say that, first of all, it should be hard to report on an active FCI investigation. Yeah. I mean, you know, the idea that... Uh, <laughs> yeah, even one that everybody is leaking on this much? No, no. I mean, like, like, <laughs> I mean sort of some of the people who were talking to some of the journalists are talking out of their posterior orifices, not out of their mouths. And... And there's, you know, not all of these sources can be correct. And so there's, there's some, uh, you know, garbage coming out and there's some good information coming out. And it's going to take a, a little while to sift through it. I think the, um, you know, and we got to be a little bit patient about that because, uh, I actually don't think what you would want is for the people who really know what's going on as much as I would love for Shane to get this story for the line FBI agents who know exactly what's going on to pick up the phone and call Shane and say, hey, we've got a FISA on so-and-so and we've got, you know, and we picked up an intercept in which, you know, Flynn said X to such and such. To be clear, that did not happen. Right. So, like, I think – and I come subpoenaing my phone calls. And I think that would be, like – you know, as much as I would love for Shane to get that story, actively undesirable as a public policy matter for that to happen. And so if you believe that, it's worth being a little bit patient about, uh, you know, when we find out what did and didn't happen here. 
So I agree with that in terms of uh, uh, we shouldn't be rushing to, uh, you know, assumptions about what Flynn did or did not do. Um, and and I and I agree that it's, um, you know, these are highly sensitive investigations. These are not areas in which we should cherish leaks or those of us who are not journalists should not cherish leaks. Um, one thing that I do think that there isn't necessarily as much time on um, is the question of um, trust and perception about Michael Flynn. Um, so uh, there are reports that the cabinet has grown deeply uncomfortable um, as a secretary, the Secretary of Defense Mattis, uh, Secretary of State Tillerson, um, that there are there are real concerns uh, about Michael Flynn, uh, not to mention sort of his plans for, uh, you know, reorganizing the intelligence con- community or, or consolidating, uh, you know, uh, consolidating control in himself over those communities. Um <clears throat> Paired with, uh, you know, emerging reports in, in foreign press, you know, Israeli press, British press about uh, concerns about sharing information, allies sharing information. You know, I, I do think it's important to, to note that, you know, if you are not trusted as a national security advisor, if you are not trusted uh, by the military, by the intelligence community and by our allies, that is consequential. And somebody needs to uh, at, at some point, Trump is going to have to reckon with the fact that the relevant uh, sensibility here is not his personal faith in Michael Flynn, but whether or not he can convince other people to trust him. Well, yes. But at the same time, I would say it would not be unprecedented for foreign governments to conclude that there is another individual in the leadership of the United States who's a better interlocutor for them than the National Security Advisor. I think that there have certainly been administrations where the National Security Advisor has not been the preferred channel to the president. Secretary of State's played that role or a chief of staff's played that role. So, you know, Flynn could become less trusted and therefore less relevant and still sit in his chair for a good long time. All that said, I, I basically agree with your analysis, Susan, and I I think we've discussed before, um, you know, if we were going to put our bets down on who amongst this bizarre team uh, around Donald Trump on national security, who's going to go first, that my bet is down on yeah. Michael Flynn to go well, first. Well, can, 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 I, can I say that's actually uh, a subject on which I'm not willing to bet at this point, but I, I do think is a really excellent test of how – crazy the Trump administration is going to be. Um, the Trump administration has uh, a truly first-rate uh, individual as Secretary of Defense. I mean, you can agree with him or disagree with him about all kinds of things, but there's just no doubt that Mattis is a formidable individual. It has a person, uh, again, agree with him about all kinds of things or disagree with him, of, of, of significant leadership accomplishment as Secretary of State. Um, And it has a person at CIA uh, who, while he has some eccentric views, um, has certainly um, impressed uh, a lot of IC people over the last few months at having gone native quickly at CIA and Mike Pompeo. And so you have a relatively conventional, pretty serious national security team as a general matter. In addition, Jeff Sessions aside, uh, you have a, a really excellent team emerging at the Justice Department between uh, reports of, of uh, um, 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 
the deputy attorney general designate and the associate attorney general designate. So you have, a, a, I think, broadly speaking, a pretty conventional and relatively strong Republican administration emerging uh, with this coordinating mechanism led by a person who is, I'm going to be a little bit less delicate than Susan was about this, a frickin' nutcase. Um, and who, um, and so the question I think is really, uh, just to, to frame as a question what Tamara framed as a, as a, as a, as a statement and a prediction, who lasts longer? Right. Flynn or the people who are running these agencies. Right. And I think that will be a really good right. indication yeah, that's a good framing. of, of whether right. this administration is resolving toward a normalcy in which the president can be managed or resolving in a direction in which the White House is a sort of weird, out-of-control group of, of, of crazy people. So I think the, the test, I, I think one thing that will be interesting is to see whether or not those people, the sort of the grown-ups, the same people, take this opportunity to try and oust Flynn. Um, that uh, obviously somebody is leaking and leaking in a persistent way about these calls, about this investigation. Um, uh, surely there are a lot of people who would like to see Michael Flynn ride off into the sunset. Um, and I, I think it's <laughs> be, be, likely... Be driven <laughs> off into the sunset. I think it's likely they will use this opportunity um, uh, as uh, really trying to uh, to make their move in, in forcing him out. Um, what actually happens, we will see. Um, but uh, if I was sitting at DOD and was deeply uncomfortable with Flynn, I, I would really want to be um, hammering home the unusualness and, and the concerns um, about the fact that he's, you know, apparently under uh, either currently or in the near future, in the recent past, has been under counterintelligence investigation. I mean, uh, it, it certainly there's a precedent for uh, less important national security advisors. I don't know that there's a precedent for national security advisors having been uh, investigated uh, for FCI. I want I want to see one thing. Thing in defense of Mike Flynn on that point, um, which is, if you are, if you if you construe the facts in the light most favorable to Mike Flynn, which is, and this is not going to, this is going to sound like damning with faint praise, but I actually mean it seriously. Um, this is somebody who has, um, uh, who believes that the great threat in the world is not Vladimir Putin, but some combination of of the Muslim Brotherhood, ISIS, and uh, and various other Islamic organizations. Um, this is somebody who believes uh, that in private life enough to end up at a table with Vladimir Putin at an RT dinner. Their their anniversary, just as this episode is our anniversary. Notice that Vladimir Putin is not here for our hundredth episode, and neither is the National Security. Advisor. Neither is the but National that's Security. We advisor. didn't pan. Neither is Al Baghdadi. Um, and look, if you're somebody who believes those things, um, and you're somebody who has acted on those beliefs. Uh, and as a result, you have lots of relationships with people like the Russian ambassador. Um, and your president, whom you serve, his goal, incoming president, is to, stated publicly, by the way, over and over again, is to improve relations with Vladimir Putin. Uh, being on the phone with 
the Russian ambassador is not the craziest thing for you to do on a regular basis. And so I, I think one possible explanation of all of this, which I'm actually really open to, is that there's no, you know, like nothing nefarious here. Everything about these people that's open on the table is consistent with, uh, with General Flynn's being on the phone three or four times a day with the Russian ambassador. Now, I would say that's a huge problem, but it's not an FCI problem. It's a, these people are taking the country in a terrible direction problem, which is different from FCI. So everything is perfectly normal. Yeah, I feel so much better now. Thank <laughs> well, you. Well, I, I did like I said it might I mean, sound normal like, for them. It might sound like damning I, with faint praise. Yeah. But, but it's, I even reject your I even reject that premise. I don't think even if they were your best friends, um I don't think uh I can I cannot think of any situation uh, absent, you know, a, a sort of an ongoing emergency in which the national security advisor should be on the phone five times in one day well, uh with there, Russian There was a Russian plane had just gone down with a big soccer team or you know a, a, band. A ba- sorry, band. Band. Um, so that's the soccer team was 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 Columbia. So that's one. Um, that's one call. Well, five then calls. you have to call don't back. Talk to anyone five times that's what I'm saying. Today. With the exception, do you two? Do the people in this room who are literally married to each other talk on the phone five times a day? Well, in fairness, they work in the same building. Well, we. But I don't talk to my husband five times a day on the phone. I don't talk to my husband. Five I don't times text a him day. five times a day. Well, True look. confessions from Shane. <laughs> I don't. I I text Quinto way more than five times a day. <laughs> All right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, Susan, you want to share first? Yeah, I will go first. Um, so uh, my object lesson uh, is uh, <clears throat> these rather astounding images from the Women's March uh, that took place this weekend on Saturday. And um, so, as my uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, that I would be spending the inaugural weekend uh, at the Women's March and. Uh, um, just in case, since I know we now um, fight about whether or not pictures reflecting crowd size actually do, in fact, reflect crowds. Um, size matters. Having seen it with my own eyes, I have never in my life seen anything like this, just in terms of the sheer number of people um, and how sort of unified they were uh, uh, in in wanting to be there and sort of st- taking to the streets. Um, you know, the, the march was actually supposed to start at, at 3rd and Independence and then go down to the to the White House, um, there were actually so many people there that the entire route was full, right? Like the crowds were so big that they almost reached the White House on their own. Um, it was just this this really unbelievable, remarkable display um, and, and really incredibly empowering and uplifting um, uh, to see how many people uh, were willing to come and uh, and make their voices heard. Um, and uh, so my object lesson is... is uh, uh, you know, both the, these images and also, uh, you know, a call to arms that this is a, a sustained uh, feeling, right? That it's not just about, you know, coming for a single day and marching, but is really sort of the, the start of uh, uh, marking the relationship that the American people are going to have with this administration um, uh, and, and, and ensuring that um, that they do the right things and then they do them on our behalf and, and they hear the things we care about. Um, so pink yay. hats for everyone. Pink hats, the Women's March. Uh, I'll go next. My object is <clears throat> the security at the visitor center of Bowling Air Force Base, or if you like Joint Base Anacostia Bowling, or the JBAB, as I like to call it. The JBAB. I like JBAB. I have gone through security at the Central Intelligence Agency, the FBI, 
the White House, the Pentagon, the Israeli National Security Council, and other assorted government buildings, you could put them all together and these people do not have the security of the JBAB. <laughs> if you are ever visiting the JBAB, as I am tomorrow for the second time this month to lecture a class at the National Intelligence University, which I am happy to do, you need to leave more time than if you were boarding a goddamn international <laughs> aircraft, okay? <laughs> I don't know what it is. I don't know where these procedures came from. It is like stepping into some kind of amazing security vortex. You First, you have to get there, which is not easy, by the way, and the maps are all wrong. Then you pull in and give your driver's license to a guy who flags you to the visitor center. Then you go in the visitor center with your ID, with your car registration, with your proof of insurance. You fill what? out a form what? and take a number. On said form includes things like your height, your weight, your eye color, your hair color, your How many race, times a day name. you talk to your husband? You might, that might be on there next week. And if they hear this before tomorrow, I'm not getting in. <laughs> then they call your number like it's the DMV. Take those forms. Then you go to another room with another line where you sit and wait to meet another person to process you, to give you the pass that then lets you go out to have your photograph made, a scan of your fingerprint taken. To then finally get the pass to allow you to go back out and through the same gate that you came in before you then have to go down to the Defense Intelligence Agency headquarters, at least where I was, where you then wait another 10 minutes to get processed in again with your driver's license, surrender all of your communications equipment, put it in a locker, and go through a metal detector. Never, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It's amazing. I'm just going to go naked with like 10 forms of ID gown. tomorrow. Just do it. Yeah. It's incredible. You and know I, what, Shane? They invented all that for you. Everybody else just walks right in. It's amazing. But they were like, oh, Shane Harris is coming today. Let's see what we can cook I, I up hope for it him. Sure, it sure made me feel very special yeah. and very dangerous. Did you feel really extra secure <laughs> when you got I, on base? I mean, yeah. You were yeah. extremely vetted. Extremely vetted. Although That's I noticed that nobody actually checked my car like, underneath my car to make sure there wasn't, you know. A weapon in it or something. Well, like make that. sure you strap a weapon under. <laughs> your oh, car. sure. But, I mean, it's, it is just amazing, and I and I, I really, I'm not kidding you. It or, takes an hour, what, an hour, an hour to get ben through. Do what Ben does. Keep a chainsaw in the trunk. Oh, right? sure. Yeah, they react to that. See how that goes. See how that goes. <laughs> so, if you work at Bowling Air Force Base, I'm certain that you've been cleared and you don't have to go through this. Be glad and just know you are very, very safe at work. By the way, shout out on the safe on, on the security protocols front to the folks at Fort Meade who have the coolest uh, and chillest uh, entry for guest security protocols. I've been there, you know, half a dozen, uh, maybe 10 times. Um, they have a metal detector. They've never made me go through it. Um, you know, you drive in, you give them your license, uh, your, your, your driver's license. They check that you're on the list of people pre-cleared. God only knows what they've done to pre-clear you in. But once you're pre-cleared, it's kind of, it's it's a little more than getting into Brookings, but it's really not a big yeah. deal. Bowling Air Force so, Base, oh. call Fort Meade at once. <laughs> let, me, let me offer a little bit of context for this. So um, having been to Fort Meade significantly more than 10 times um, and having to go through the multiple checkpoints and put in different codes and put in the badge and park like way, way out and get on a shuttle and drive in. Um, the one time that I went to Fort Meade with one Benjamin Wittes uh, after I'd left the agency, um, not only was 
it the fastest I have ever gotten into that agency, <laughs> but it is the best parking spot. I'm talking like right by the front designated parking spot I have ever seen in my life. So, so in other words, all that niceness is just for Ben. It's Ben specific. <laughs> and I, it's, it's on the director's to to list yeah. to specific. All right, so ben, you're less, going with less the little people think that they too will have this experience. <laughs> um, let me disabuse you. Ben? I have two object lessons. The first, which uh, comes to me uh, courtesy of our audio engineer, Quinta Jurassic, is a single sentence that appeared in an Associated Press story yesterday, which I, I, it's just, I just love so much. Uh, this is not a joke. It is from the Associated Press story yesterday. The bad press over the weekend has not allowed Trump to, quote, enjoy, unquote, the White House as he feels he deserves, according to one person who has spoken with him. Mm -hmm. So just as you think the president um, may be, uh, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, behaving peculiarly or something, he's upset with you, um, particularly if you're a member of the press. Because you're not kind of giving him. Because you're a buzzkill. You're 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 his buzzkill right now. He's working hard to make America great for him, and mm -hmm. and he really wants to be able to sit back and enjoy the magnitude of his accomplishment. And it's really your fault that he's not able to do that. And so I I I say to the president, pobrecito. And please, uh, you know, be nice to the president, all members of the press, because it's really hurting his feelings. Um, the second object lesson, which I, a lot of listeners will have already seen because it's been making the round on Twitter, but I think it really is a, a, a thing of beauty, uh, is a little video uh, that um, was made by a, a Dutch TV show um, uh, uh, riffing, it's kind of like the the Dutch version apparently of John Stewart and uh riffing on the idea that the president said in his inauguration that inaugural speech that it was all America first and so th this is the idea that okay we accept that it should be America first but can it be the Netherlands second and um <laughs> and so they put together a 4 minute promotion for the idea that like okay america's going to be first but can the dutch be second and it's specifically tailored to appeal to donald trump so it's all the things about holland that they think that that trump might enjoy like mayonnaise on french fries uh uh they, they 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 focus on oh. certain uh racially charged um uh uh Oh, yeah, uh, they have the racist. They have, they, they uh, have, yeah. the, they have the racist <laughs> ceremony. They have, um, and it is uh, charming and <laughs> screamingly funny. Um, and um, and I encourage you all to watch it. As the great Jonathan Rauch said in sending it to me, if we can learn to laugh at Donald Trump, we have a chance of getting through this. All right, positive, helpful words of motivation to end on. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You know what to do on iTunes, Stitcher, and your favorite podcatcher. 
Give us a 100-star review for our 100th episode. Do it, do it, do it. Do it. Write in there, Casper Mattresses and whomever should check out this podcast. Whatever <laughs> you like. You know, at this point, look, Heinz Ketchup, whoever wants to sponsor us. I mean, gum. I like gum. Yeah, gum we're, we're, we're going to be the official sponsor of the Wrigley Corporation. Sure. Or maybe some kind of sedative, like oh, a yeah. Benadryl. Or a be- some sort of like <laughs> a, like, right, yeah, Prozac. Yeah. That should, Zanax. that should be sponsored. Because totally. really the, the podcast four years. is Prozac for national security. Nerds. Cannabinous oil. And let's face it, our <laughs> listeners totally are probably popping pills like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> Medicate through, guys. Tell a friend. Our audio Brought engineer. to you by Langavulinsk. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it is brought to you every week by Link Our long-suffering audio engineer is Quentin Jurassic. <laughs> the show is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Donald Trump and the Chaos Council. Hmm. All right. It's a good right. band, Sounds right? Sounds like a funk band. It's a funk band, Chaos yeah. Council. Of course, our General music's... Flynn and the Conspiracy Theorists. Yeah, or the Conspiracy Council. Yeah. Ooh, that's good. Ooh, Conspiracy yeah. Council. National Conspiracy Council. That sounds like a like a early '90s emo punk band. Ooh, yeah. Conspiracy Council. I like it. We're gonna form it tomorrow, uh, along with Sophia Yan, who actually performs our music and can do like lead keyboards for Conspiracy Council. Couldn't you see like with, like a little synth keyboard Sophia could do for us? Yeah, I don't know if you could pay her enough to make her do that. Well, certainly less than you had to pay Michael Flynn. <laughs> <laughs> On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman, Wittes, Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening, and thanks for making it 100 great episodes. We'll talk to you later. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.